The old pilot's plain tales. Fighting fog. Launching a thousand bomber raid took organization and preparation. Timing was critical, and whether it was the RAF's bomber command with their Lancasters, Stirlings, Halifax and Mosquitoes at night, or the 8th Air Force's B-17s and B-24s by day, the risks were high that many would not return. Whether from their multitude of bases in Lincolnshire, such as North Witham, Woodhall Spa, Curtin and Lindsay, Elsham, Wolds, or elsewhere, they would eventually turn away from their targets and set course for home. Many would be damaged, perhaps limping along with an engine out, with low fuel, but once past the enemy coast and within Britain's fighter cover, the tension would start to drop away. After struggling for many hours to stay alert to every danger, fatigue would take hold and men would relax, thinking that there was little to do but find their home airfield, land, and then there would be a hot breakfast, perhaps with some eggs and a warm bed waiting for them. But after surviving this far, a cruel twist of fate awaited some of them. Whilst they had been away, conditions at home might have changed. The notoriously fickle British weather might have summoned up a thick soupy layer of fog that would obliterate the ground from view. Under a clear sky in falling temperatures, humid air struggles to hold moisture in gaseous form and with a little mechanical turbulence to help, as the wet and dry bulb temperatures become equal, radiation fog would start to form. Or it might be a layer of low cloud over the chilly North Sea just off the Lincolnshire coast that drifted inland on an easterly breeze to cover the airfields in advection fog. Whatever the cause, as the pilots and navigators picked their way through the hundreds of other aircraft around them, their hearts would sink when this stuff of an aviator's nightmares started to obliterate familiar landmarks and, more importantly, the vital strips of concrete that they needed to land on. In the words of one B-17 veteran, The first view of the White Cliffs of Dover was always a most beautiful sight, but there were frequent weather problems in England in the winter. Days were short and there was almost constant fog and haze. Returning planes had to disperse to descend through the fog. Nearing the base, any plane that was damaged or carried injured crewmen left the formation early, fired a flare and landed first. With as many as 42 airplanes returning at once, it was sometimes a mess. In another account, an unfortunate mosquito crew of the Pathfinder force was trying to land in fog at RAF Upwood. They were coming home from a night mission to Cologne, and on returning from Germany at one in the morning, the fog was very thick. On its landing attempt, the mosquito overshot the runway and crashed into a house on the edge of the airfield, catching fire. An eyewitness recalled, 
I was on my way to bed when we heard this terrible crash and rushed out to see the quarters ablaze. Up in a window we could see three of our lads who had just come back from a raid. They still had their uniforms on. They couldn't get out and we couldn't get in to help them. There was nothing anybody could do. Then they disappeared into a cloud of flame and smoke as their building collapsed on them. I came across the bodies of the mosquito pilot and navigator. They were still in their flying kit, but that was all that was holding them together. They were all smashed up, and when each body was put in a blanket, it just folded up into a ball as if there was nothing left of them. Now that really shook me. The old fogs of England, particularly London, had become notorious. Coal burned in homes and factories, which gave rise to a mixture of smoke and fog that could cause impenetrable pea-soupers, would last for days, even weeks. In the countryside, the normal winter weather of low cloud, drizzle and fog also caused many problems. Loss rates amongst the returning bombers grew. Often large areas would be simultaneously fog-bound, and it became the usual procedure when all other options, such as a diversion, had been exhausted for the pilot to point the aircraft towards the sea and then, just before crossing the coast, order the crew to bail out, leaving the empty aircraft to crash into the water. As the size of the bomber raids grew to many hundreds of aircraft, this could amount to a large loss rate. Crashing whilst attempting to land in dreadful visibility was common, and with it came the loss of vital, well-trained and experienced aircrew. Even a successful parachute jump was rarely completed without injury. Arthur Clifford Hartley was just the kind of engineer that the RAF needed, Born in 1889, he worked for the railways before joining the Royal Flying Corps during the First World War. He qualified as a pilot and rose to the rank of major before joining the Air Board, where he was involved in the development of the interrupter gear that allowed forward-firing machine guns to fire through the propeller arc of an aircraft. In the Second World War, he helped to develop the highly accurate bomb sight that allowed precise delivery of such weapons as the five-ton Tallboy, which was used against the German battleship Tirpitz, with such devastating effect. Between the wars, Hartley had worked in the petroleum business, and Air Chief Marshal Arthur Harris approached him in the hope that he might come up with a solution to the losses he was incurring in bomber command due to fog. Hartley went to work, and before long he came up with Fido. No, not a dog to guide the bombers back home, but an acronym for the Fog Investigation and Dispersal Operation. The principle that they developed is formally attributed to Dr. John David Main Smith, an ex-Birmingham residence and principal scientific officer of the chemistry department of the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough. Before long, patent number 595907, titled Dispersing or Preventing Fog in General, example on roads or airfields, was lodged with the patent office. The description goes like this. 
Fog is dispersed by the use of luminous flames of strong emissivity extending over a wavelength of 1 to 10 microns and produced by liquid fuel supplied under pressure to burners constructed and arranged so that the wide angled cone of fine spray from any burner does not overlap those of adjacent burners. Burners three feet apart, giving a maximum flame diameter of two and a half feet, are preferred using an alcohol-petrol mixture containing 20% by volume of petrol. In practice, FIDO was a secret system that consisted of large storage tanks for the fuel, a pump house, and then a line of pipes which were laid along the sides of the main runway, At short intervals on the pipes were spray nozzles that would disperse the fuel, which, when lit, formed a blazing wall of flame that shot several feet up into the air. Its first success was gained on November 4, 1942, when in Hampshire a dense fog of 50 yards visibility was cleared by petroleum burners in an area about 200 yards square to a height of 80 feet. By January 1943, large-scale runways had been constructed for further experiments. These were on the same scale as actual operational runways and had the advantage of being available for experiments by day and night. After the war, the presence of FIDO was revealed to the British public in The War Illustrated. To quote... Its crew consisted of a sergeant, three corporals and 17 aircraftsmen. The pipes through which the petrol was pumped enclosed the runway in a rectangle and through small holes at intervals in the pipes, blazing petrol vapour was forced under great pressure, billowing several feet high. It obviously had its difficulties. The rising air and turbulence made landings problematic, and should an aircraft have trouble and veer off the runway, a wall of flame awaited. But it was certainly better than trying to land in fog. However, the cost to an embattled country, tight in the grip of rationing, when every drop of petrol was precious, was enormous. It consumed vast amounts of fuel in the order of 100,000 gallons, that's 450,000 litres of petrol an hour, and airfields with longer runways could use over twice that amount. On November 19, 1943, FIDO first came into operational use when four Halifaxes landed successfully after a bombing mission to the Ruhr. Though the surrounding visibility was only 100 yards, ten minutes after Fido had been lit, the visibility on the runway increased to the equivalent of two to four miles. The apparatus frequently cleared the air to a height of several hundred feet, with the result that the sky and stars became visible over the runway. There were obvious worries when FIDO was operated, as the glow of burners on an aerodrome was, on occasions, seen by air crews over the North Sea and from the Dutch coast, and could easily attract enemy bombers. As one pilot described it, even in poor visibility, the massive glow from the flames could be seen many miles away, and it was a comforting sight 
we were guided down individually into the installation, and when touching down it was like entering a well-lit tunnel, even if the visibility outside was almost nil. It was certainly much preferable to abandoning one's aircraft by parachute, as had been the old solution when dense fog obscured the runway at base. However much the cost of the fuel, when compared with the aircraft losses, it was considered an acceptable trade, as this interview with Air Vice Marshal Bennett, the chief of the Pathfinder Force and bomber leaders, explains. I think the public should know that Fido, in this war, has saved over 10,000 aircrew lives. Moreover, Fido has made it possible to carry out operations in base weather which would have stopped all flying in the past. An example of that was when, in the Arden offensive, Brunstedt tried to break through. Bomber support was necessary, heavy support, and the pathfinders were required to mark. But pathfinder base weather was fog, thick fog. The pathfinders were rare, however, because Fido made it possible for the pathfinders to take off and land in spite of this thick fog. Moreover, it's been of tremendous value uh, to crews returning from operations to know that they could get down at their bases, regardless of the weather. Fido was fitted to a total of 15 RAF airfields. RAF's Blackbush, Bradwell Bay, Carnaby, Downham Market, Fiskerton, Falsham, Graverley, Ludford Magna, Manston, Melbourne, Metheringham, St. Evil, Sturgate, Tuddenham and Woodbridge, but on occasions even that wasn't enough. It was the night of the 16th of December and Bomber Command had been back to Berlin yet again. Over 700 people on the ground were killed, although German records were no longer as accurate as they had been. 25 Lancasters were lost to fighters and anti-aircraft fire over Germany. Worse was to come as the bombers returned to England in the early hours of the 17th to find that many of their airfields were fog-bound. With a dense fog obscuring much of the country, the RAF crews were faced with enormous difficulties in landing. The airfields at Bourne and Gransden Lodge were probably the worst hit, Visibility was dropping progressively with every minute that passed. By midnight it was down to 300 yards or less, and it took about a 1,000 yards to stop a Lancaster. By the early hours of the morning, the cloud base at Gransden Lodge was at 100 feet and the visibility very poor. The situation became desperate as the planes began to run out of fuel. Some crews abandoned their aircraft and bailed out. More died when they crashed on landing. Black Thursday, as the day became called, saw the loss of 25 Lancasters during the Berlin operation, but a further 31 were lost due to the fog over England. The aircraft crashed or were abandoned when their crews bailed out, or in the case of two unfortunate crews, they collided over Lincolnshire whilst waiting to land. Other aircraft, Stirlings, Halifaxes and Lysanders, variously on gardening, training or special duties flights, also crashed due to the fog. 
In total, Bomber Command suffered 327 deaths and the loss of 70 aircraft on this day. The death toll for the bad weather crashes in England was close to 150, not counting those who died later of their injuries. By the end of the war, new and more sophisticated systems were being employed. G, a radio navigational aid which was very accurate over England, would help the returning aircraft to locate their home airfields, but it was too imprecise to actually direct them down onto a runway. However, the standard beam approach, which was installed at base airfields, became available. Referred to as landing on the beam, SBA employed signals emitted by beacons in line with the main runway. These beacons sent out a code to the pilot, which showed if he was straying off course, dots to one side, dashes to the other, and a steady note if he was right on track. The pilot first picked up the sound from the outer marker of the airfield, and once on top of it and in the cone of silence, he checked his altimeter to determine his angle of approach to the runway. He then passed on to the inner marker for a similar procedure. If his height and speed were correct, it was okay to attempt to land blind, for he still could not see the runway in front of him. The margin for error was exceedingly small, and each failed attempt brought an increase in danger. There was also the considerable pressure of having a dozen or more aircraft stacked up at different heights, all running short of fuel and all wanting to get down. After the end of the war, FIDO continued to be used for a while at some military and civil airfields in the UK, such as Manston and Blackbush, and in the United States, where it was further developed into a version called ELMA. It was partially installed on the number one runway at Heathrow, but never became operational. Of course, the development of the instrument landing system, the ILS, would obviate the need to burn vast quantities of fossil fuels, which in these days of global warming is probably a good thing and definitely going green. But during the dark and difficult days of the Second World War, Fido was undoubtedly a lifesaver for many, many pilots. If you enjoy Plain Tales, please pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.